post-election. Fresh start, familiar issues. South Florida Republicans stake their claim in Congress. I know there's been a lot of discussion about the vaccines, and rightfully so, it's important. State lawmakers convene. We are having more cases. The number of people presenting to hospital is increasing. As predictions of a Thanksgiving COVID calamity loom. Instead of working united, um, there has been no communications. Familiar faces get new roles and new challenges. Have mercy on our state. South Florida counties have new mayors. That I am duly qualified to hold office. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin today with the South Florida congressman who soon won't be the sole Republican in the South Florida delegation anymore. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart's new Miami-Dade colleagues in Congress are part of Florida's red wave. Although President Trump won Florida easily by 371,000 votes, this weekend the door is closing on his legal challenges to President-elect Joe Biden. Congressman Diaz-Balart has been one of the president's staunchest supporters from the very beginning. He's been in Congress since 2002, was re-elected in November without opposition. He joins us now this morning via Skype. Congressman, great to see Good you. Morning. Good morning. Good to see both of you. Thank you. Congressman, let's begin with the most basic question. Do you acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States? Look, the process is ongoing, but obviously it gets more difficult uh, as states start certifying, um, you know, who won. Uh, I think that the Georgia certification uh, makes it more difficult for President Trump uh, to have a path forward. And so, you know, just like in the year 2000, it took 37 days. I don't think it will, or, or close to 37 days. I don't think it's going to take that long to finally have a president that's certified. Uh, and so, you know, look, I'm content to wait till the legal process uh, finishes. I'm patient. Uh, and the process is working as it's supposed to. We are all congressmen fully behind the process going fully forward as legally allowed. But really, when you count, the math just really isn't there at this point, even if Michigan, even if Georgia, even if Pennsylvania, which all of those three states look like they will not be turned, the, the math electorally just isn't there at the moment. So. As, as someone who has the president's ear, as someone who has been his supporter since the very beginning, are, are you at all thinking that you might want to add your voice to a smooth transition, even starting now while the process plays out? I think it's important and it would be positive to have, uh, you know, the, the Biden folks uh, participate in a transition. If, if, if then, um, you know, something changes, then great, no harm, no foul, right? Um, that would be my recommendation. And again, I'm, I'm uh, I'm willing to wait for the process to, to be over. Uh, I agree with you that that uh, avenue for President Trump uh, to win is getting narrower and narrower as, as the hours go by. Um, but again, I also remind everybody that we should not go uh, and listen to uh, projections. We should wait for the final calls, because if we relied on projections and then uh, Republicans would have lost 20 plus seats uh, in, in Congress, and we picked up obviously a number of seats. So. Let's just be patient. The, the, the process will work, is working. Um, and so I'm confident that once again, if, if it is Biden, and I think it's more likely than not that it will be uh, Biden who wins, and then we'll have a, uh, a peaceful transition and, and otherwise uh, the same thing. So I'm not, I'm not concerned about that uh, in, in, at all. Yeah. Congressman, as you well know, there is a long and glorious tradition in this country where a president who loses an election uh, 
facilitates a easy transition to his successor. Gerald Bush did that. Uh, Gerald Ford did that rather with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter did it with Ronald Reagan. Uh, it's happened in every presidency in our time. So why do you think President Trump is not going to facilitate an easy transition for Joe Biden? Yeah, look, I, would, I agree with you. You just mentioned some really good examples, but I would also uh, show the last example. Uh, for four years, there was an effort by the Democratic leadership, by the Democratic Party, by some in the press even, to delegitimize the presidency of uh, President Trump. We spent years following lies and fake windows uh, of this so-called, uh, you know, discredited uh, Russia collusion. So again, yes, it's true. You mentioned some great examples, but I would tell you that the example that was set by the Democratic leadership and by some in the elite, uh, including in the elite media, uh, trying to delegitimize uh, President Trump. You know, you saw members of Congress, Democrats saying, that's not my president. So yeah, there have been some good examples. I think the last example that the Democrats gave uh, was frankly really, really hurtful. Uh, but I'm sure and I'm confident that uh, if, as I believe will probably happen, uh, if Biden is the overall winner, and then you're going to you're going to see a peaceful transition. And I, I, here's what I would also guarantee. I don't think you're going to see the efforts to delegitimize the next president, to destroy the next president coming from the elite, coming from the uh, party, uh, uh, you know, the other side of the aisle and coming from the media uh, against the next president, as you've seen for the last four years, going against President Trump, which has no precedent, which has all been proven to be lies. Uh, and it's and it's been consistent, guys. Remember the congressman. The congressman, every I'm going to have to interrupt you. Except, congressman, except the not, woman who, who not all the not excuse me, not all of the things that have been said. Certainly, there have been ugly things said by Democratic leaders and by people in the media against Trump, uh, President Trump. But they haven't been all lies. And frankly, a lot of the problems he had, part of the reason he lost, were mistakes of his own doing. Michael, we look at his handling about of COVID. Michael, I'm talking about the, the fake, uh, proven to be fake Russian collusion that was every day the first thing that you saw in every newscast, in every publication, that was proven to be an act, you know, not only a lie, but a creation of the uh, of the campaign. It started with the campaign of, of uh, Mr. Trump's opponent. And yet, for four years, that was factual. For, for years, we also heard that every woman should be believed. And we saw that during the Kavanaugh hearings. And yet... Uh, that disappeared when you had a woman, a credible woman, uh, accuse Mr. Biden of something very, very serious, of actual rape. And so that double standard, uh, which started, by the way, and so started with the Democratic leadership and ended with being repeated by most of the national and even some local media, uh, really was not uh, helpful. So I guarantee you that you will not have such a negative attitude as we've seen in the last four years. In the next four years, I hope that we don't have such a negative attitude in the next four years as we saw in a planned out, um, really frankly, organized fashion to try to delegitimize the president for the last four years. Congressman, so you, you have our word here. We will not be negative nor positive, but straight down the middle as always. But can we move forward a little bit here? Uh, talk about COVID because right now you were the first person in Congress to have COVID and have mm -hmm. now recovered. And I know that was a difficult time for you. Uh, Senator Rick Scott now has COVID among other people that we keep hearing about. You know, it, your perspective is so valuable now because of what you've been through. 
Lessons learned. Should, should there be a state or national mask mandate, as some states are now doing, yeah. with some positive results? Yeah, I think a national mandate was, would, would frankly be kind of absurd because there are huge differences in different areas uh, of, of the country and different areas of states. Um, you know, I wear my mask, uh, a mask as much as I can. I think it makes sense to do so. It, it's 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 an ounce ounce of prevention, right? So anything that we can do helps. Um, but I think a national, uh, just a feel-good uh, mask mandate when there are huge differences in different areas uh, makes no sense. I am, however, very, very excited about, um, you know, we've seen the largest scientific mobilization since the Apollo program, a tribute to uh, the last, uh, you know, to, to the President Trump's administration. You're going to have multiple vaccines in by the by far the quickest that we that humanity has ever seen, uh, a tribute to this great country, to the efforts of the federal government, that's a game changer. In the meantime, uh, we all have to do everything that we can to keep ourselves, our family members safe. Uh, that to me means social distancing, look, common sense, wearing a mask when it makes sense, obviously. Um, but, but having a mandate coming from Washington that you know some rural area in Alaska has to be treated the same as some dense place in New York, to me, is frankly a little ludicrous. You know, that's a, that's a very fair point. How about this question? Can you, with what you've been through, what would be your personal recommendation to people as they decide how to be responsible for themselves and others? What, what do you suggest? To take it very seriously. And take it very, very seriously. Look, there are some people that go through it and frankly have little or no symptoms. But there, as we know, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their lives. And so I take it very seriously because I don't want to get my family infected. And so I theoretically, I'm still immune uh, potentially now. Um, but why take the risk? Why take the risk? Take it very, very seriously. Uh, it's the best thing that we could do for our family members, for our friends, is to take it seriously. And so, again, an ounce of prevention, just being common sense, uh, try to be conscious of not spreading it because, you know, we may later learn that, you know, masks are not as effective or social distancing should have been, you know, five feet and not six feet or eight feet. Regardless, common sense, taking it very seriously, trying to protect your fellow, your, your friends, your family uh, is the right way to go. Yeah. Uh, Congressman, uh, President Trump ran a really excellent campaign in Florida, paid off, won by 371,000 votes. Part of the reason that he won is that every time he came over the last four years to South Florida, he spoke to uh, Cuban Americans, Venezuelan exiles, Nicaraguans, people from all over the Caribbean, Central South America, and said, socialism, we will never be socialist country, the United States. Uh, and that resonated. And, uh, and yet, you, I think, would you acknowledge that none of the opponents, Joe Biden is not a socialist. Donna Shalala is not a socialist. Debbie Mukar Sal Powell wasn't a socialist. Maybe they did a bad job of refuting that accusation, but I mean, you know, they lost in many ways because the president and others called them socialists. You know, I, I kind of, I've seen a lot of, uh, uh, two, two articles today in the Miami Herald, which were almost offensive, kind of patronizing, saying that the Hispanics and Latinos in, in this area are kind of like stupid. Look, here's the reality. Um, the good policy is the best politics, Michael, you know that. So the contrast between President Trump's policies towards Latin America, towards the, these dictatorships, versus the contrast of Joe Biden's record. Remember, 
Joe Biden himself said that he's going to be the most progressive president in the history of the United States. Uh, what does that mean? That word means something. Who else, Michael, calls themselves progressive? Bernie Sanders, Maduro, Castro, Ortega. I mean, those are those are the facts. And then when you contrast not only those kind of things, but also the policy of legitimizing the Castro regime that Biden was a part of, uh, instructing the U.S. intelligence services to coordinate and share information with the Cuban intelligence services. That is the record well, that of is Joe a, Biden. So yeah, let's just well, that's, be very clear. Yeah, it's the I, record and I, the I, contrast, not just the words that matter. Yeah, Congressman, I would concede there were many things in history that uh, Mr. Biden could have done better to deal with, and he did not. And as a result, at least in Florida, he lost. Correct. We, we really appreciate the time spent with us. Thank you. Hope your, your wife, I know Tia, has underlying medical condition. I hope that she and your son are well and you as well. Thank you. Likewise, you all stay safe and uh, God bless everyone. And with a very spiffy new Skype background also. <laughs> all right, next we're taking it to the state level where your new state legislature is officially sworn in. Dialing in on Skype right now, lawmakers from Miami-Dade and Broward with both sides of the issues, both sides of the aisle, that is ahead. This week, the newly constituted Florida legislature held its first meeting. New members officially sworn in. House and Senate leaders telegraphed priorities for session that begins in March. The governor did attend the ceremonies but left without talking to reporters who were waiting with questions there. And the elephant not in the room was COVID-19. And that is where we begin with two South Florida lawmakers who are there. Chevron Jones is a newly elected Democratic state senator moving over from the House. He is from West Park in Broward. Daniel Perez is a House Republican representing Westchester in Miami-Dade and designated to be House Speaker in 2024. South Florida represent. Good morning, gentlemen. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Glad, glad you are with good us. Good morning. Representative Perez, explain to us when your House Speaker, Mr. Sprouls, uh, gave his address to the members, uh, he did not really, I mean, he just glancingly mentioned COVID-19. That was uh, also true in the Senate. We'll let uh, Senator uh, Jones discuss that. But why, why was there really no emphasis on the coronavirus uh, in the House when you convened on, on Tuesday? Yeah, Michael, look, I think the important part is that Speaker Sprouse acknowledges that over the next two years, there's going to be a variety of issues that are important to the state of Florida. One of those obviously being how we deal with COVID-19. But he wanted to give a, a big picture of what the next two years would look like. And he acknowledged that COVID-19 is something very real and something that we will have to take care of in the Florida House. And I can tell you, based on our uh, conversations on a regular basis, that we're fully aware that our goal is to make sure that we put our kids back in school, um, that we allow the businesses to keep flourishing, and at the same time, uh, make sure that some sort of legislation on how to deal with COVID uh, legally uh, takes place over the next two years. And I fully expect that. And the speaker also designated a committee, a brand new committee, to look at Florida's response. Senator Jones, that's the first time I said Senator Jones. Uh, <laughs> weigh in on that, if you would, on the Senate side. Yeah, well, you know, on the Senate side, I, I'm very appreciative for uh, what, what what President Simpson said. 
um, when, one, you saw all the procedures when we got over into the Senate side to where uh, it spoke about us wearing masks. It told us to honor social distancing. Um, and you know, the, the, the Senate president made it extremely clear that currently right now, we over the next two years, we will see a $5.4 billion uh, shortfall within, within our revenue. Uh, so it was acknowledged. Uh, my hope, and I'm sure other senators, our hope was that, um, that over in the House side that they would have acknowledged COVID uh, the same way that we uh, over in the Senate have acknowledged. Even individuals being on the Republican side, they acknowledge that COVID is real and know that this is something that we're going to have to deal with moving forward into the legislative session. Yeah, well, let me follow up on that, uh, Chevron, and also uh, Representative Diaz. Uh, the governor this week on Thursday released a rather unusual five-minute, 36-second video tweet in which he said, I've been to Washington, I have assurances, we're going to get our fair share of the vaccines. In fact, the Eli Lilly uh, monoclonal drug is already at hospitals in South Florida. So that's all to the good. What role is the legislature going to have in overseeing how those drugs are distributed, who gets them in what order? Representative Perez, what, what, what about that? Yeah, Michael, that's a protocol that actually we're working on as we speak. And I would compare it similar to how the testing took place uh, for COVID-19 from where we started to where we are today. I think we learned a lot as a state on how to implement the testing and what areas uh, needed it a little bit more than others. Um, and I think I would, I would expect the same when it came to the vaccine. Um, and look, I wanna make sure that everyone understands that even in the Florida House, I don't wanna separate it from the Senate. We obviously uh, are, are, are true believers in stating that COVID-19 is very real. Um, and you saw that, we all got tested before walking into the chamber, we wore masks. So uh, I, I think to insinuate anything otherwise would be unfair. But when it comes to the vaccine, now I would expect it to be uh, equally distributed amongst the entire state, uh, but similar to how we have done it with local governments working hand to hand. Um, there hasn't been a separation of communication. Quite frankly, it's been the opposite. And I continue, I expect us to continue to work with the local governments in implementing the vaccines. You know, that that's, um, that's a really interesting point because we have some sound, some clips of sound from earlier this week where uh, five or six local mayors here in South Florida got together to really sound an alarm about locally, they can't do what they feel they need to do in their own cities to keep people safe. Well, take a listen to, I believe it's gonna be Mayor Dan Gelber of Miami Beach. Governor needs to implement a statewide mask mandate. It just is needed. Uh, across the country, governors of every political stripe are doing it. It makes no sense whatsoever um, that instead of working united, um, there has been no communications. The positions uh, that the governor has taken thus far uh, have made our jobs uh, very difficult. So I'm not sure if you could visually see what we see. You've heard from the mayors of Miami Beach and Hialeah and St. Petersburg looking for the ability that really the governor took away to put some teeth in local actions to do what locally they think is appropriate, especially here in South Florida. So I, I wonder if you would react to that. And, and is that something that the legislature might promote? Yeah, Glenn, I mean, look, that, those speeches to me sound like political puffery, to be, to be honest. I mean, look, a statewide mandate isn't gonna accomplish what we're trying to accomplish locally. If you wanna locally uh, implement a curfew, the mayors have been able to do that. If they've uh, wanted individuals to wear masks outside, they've been able to implement those. But uh, to have a statewide mandate, look, what we have in Clay County is a different situation than we have in Miami-Dade County. 
It, it's just, it's not the same parts of the state. And you got to let each local government dictate what's best for their specific residents. Right, and but look, didn't, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but really the, what the governor also did was took away the ability to sanction. And that is really the key to local governments enforcing whatever local governments want to enforce. So do you see that as, as problematic? No, I don't see it as, as, as problematic. At the end of the day, what, what we need is, is personal responsibility. Um, we all need to take this very serious and make sure we wear our masks and make sure that we have social distancing. But look, the, the local governments, uh, Mayor, former Mayor Jimenez was able to do it, and he got a lot of kickback for it, but he was able to do so. The same with Francis Suarez. They've been able to implement it locally. Um, and and I, I haven't heard them uh, complaining about the, their relationship uh, with the governor. I, I would say that the complete opposite. So I think it's very interesting, too, Glenn, and I mean this respectfully. It's very interesting that, that some of those mayors are, are some of the more left-leaning uh, mayors. I would have liked for uh, you guys to implement uh, some clips from some of the Republican mayors on their opinion with the governor. Um, that, that is a fair point. I believe Carlos Hernandez of Hialeah, I believe, mm -hmm. is a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. And their relationship, yeah. his relationship with the governor, I would say, is a little bit on the rocks. I wouldn't, quite frankly, <laughs> consider that a, a nice relationship. Yeah. Uh, Chevron Jones, let me ask you about this. Uh, governor DeSantis is a smart, shrewd politician. Uh, we haven't really seen him publicly since November 4th when he went on Fox News and urged legislatures in Pennsylvania and Michigan to appoint electors who are Trump supporters, disregard the will of the people in those states who voted for Joe Biden. And on Tuesday, he was at your legislative session, ducked out without talking to reporters. Uh, what's up with the governor? Is he just trying to, you know, keep a low profile because he doesn't want to say if President Trump should concede? Well, let's, let's be clear about one thing. Yeah, it, it's no secret that Donald Trump has lost has lost the election. Uh, and the fact that the governor of the state of Florida, uh, where 17,000-plus people are dead because of COVID, uh, wants to find himself um, buttoning into other states' business currently right now when it comes to this their electors and doing something that's quite frankly illegal um, is, 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 is totally beyond me. You know, Governor DeSantis, uh, we, what he should be focusing on right now, and he should be focusing on how we're going to get COVID under control here within the state of Florida, considering that we just saw the highest spike of 9,000 plus cases within the state of Florida. Uh, and you know, with all due respect to my friend Danny Perez, who I have a great deal of respect for and I love dearly, that the governor has taken that taking those rights away from local government so local governments cannot do what they need to do to keep people safe. Uh, and so they do not have that local control. So as it pertains to the president um, and, and Governor DeSantis, whatever he's trying to cover for, for uh, Donald Trump, it's over. The race is done. The, uh, Joe Biden will be elected to president on the, uh, January, uh, whatever date it is. I can't remember the date, but he will be the president at 12 o'clock p.m. Danny yeah. Perez, you want to you wanna react to that with the 30 seconds we have left? Yeah, sure. And I, 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 uh, I appreciate the kind words from, from Senator Jones, but we'll just agree to disagree at this point. I think uh, local governments have been able to, to do just that. Um, and yeah, the, the numbers have gone up, and I think the governor has acknowledged that. Uh, but if we're looking at, it depends on the sample size too, Glenn. I mean, if we're looking at uh, from several months to where we are today, if we're looking at hospitalization rates, uh, they're down. If we're looking at the mortality rate, it's down. Uh, COVID is not going anywhere. We need to continue to attack it aggressively. But we have done an impressive job here in Florida in comparison specifically to some of the more left-leaning states like New York and California. All right. Representative Daniel Perez of Westchester, thank you for your time this morning. Senator Chevron Jones, West Park, we always appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Thanks so both, much. gentlemen. Thank you.
Uh, and just one note, I just want to fact check um, South Florida hospitals. There has been an uptick this yes. week in South Florida hospitals. Uh, that said, let's turn to Broward County has a new mayor. What changes are ahead for him in Broward? Well, we will ask Steve Geller. That is next. The job of mayor in Broward County is a rotating position. It's passed from one commissioner to another every year by a vote. The vote is almost always unanimous. But not a vote by voters, by the fellow commissioners, because Broward's mayor is more of that passing of the gavel, which Mayor Steve Giller is quite familiar with and also familiar with the challenges ahead. Right there with us today, live from Cooper City. Mr. Mayor, hello. Mayor Geller, I'll have to get used to saying that, but it's good. <laughs> well, good morning, Michael. You've been, we've known each other for decades, we, so you've called me a lot of things. Since we, you were 10? We have indeed. <laughs> Mayor Geller, you've seen the uh, Sun Sentinel this morning, I'm sure. The, you know, the photograph, a really kind of disturbing photograph on the front page and on the jump showing dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people, at the Wharf restaurant in downtown Fort Lauderdale, very popular place. There they are crowded together, hardly anyone wearing a mask. I mean, boy, this is about as reckless behavior as you can get. What can you and what can Broward County do about this? Well, they were fined um, yesterday and shut down for 24 hours because of their conduct. I saw in the newspaper that um, one of the owners said, uh, if we're policing our guests at a certain point, they have to take responsibility. I would say that at a certain point in time, the owners need to take responsibility. If they are unable to control the conduct of their patrons, their patrons, unfortunately, we will have to shut them down. You can't, as a business owner, tell us that you can't control the actions of your uh, patrons. If you do, you know, if they were all getting drunk and fighting, they would have had people remove them. If they're not wearing masks, That's you should it. have had them removed. That if you removed the first five of them, the other would have, would have been wearing masks. Right. Mayor, that, that comparison, forgive me for the interruption, Skype in conversation is a, is a difficult thing to maneuver. Um, that comparison is interesting because fighting and violence is a crime. Not wearing a mask is not a crime. And uh, I don't know if you were not able. Wearing a mask is a violation of the right. Broward County Code. Yes, but I, I wonder if you were listening to our conversation with the state lawmakers because the state effectively, the governor effectively took local teeth out of its local mandates. So how do you work around that and, and still make a difference by going out and citing these, these instances? It's not exactly. The governor suspended our ability to collect the fines. He did not remove our ability to continue to issue the citations. I had a long talk this weekend with Shane Strum, great guy from Broward, the governor's chief of staff. I asked the governor to first for a statewide mask mandate, which I know he's not going to do, but I had to ask. But I, I did ask him to clarify the local order and change it because people have the mistaken impression that we can't enforce things. And what was Can the I reaction? Say, what was the answer? Yeah, what did Shane say? He said he talked to the governor. You know, we'll see what happens. I'm not really expecting 
any change, but I appreciate, again, Shane has always been cooperative and helpful to South Florida. Can I say one thing about this? The I don't really understand. This is the United States of America. You look back at World War II, we sacrificed, we cut uh, gasoline, we cut food. We've made sacrifices in this country because we're patriotic. Now, when we ask people to do their patriotic duty towards this country by wearing a mask, it seems like it's too difficult for some people to comply with, and I just don't understand that. Uh, Mayor Geller, let's move on yeah. to another really big topic for Broward County, for all of South Florida, and that is the, the, the huge rainstorms from Hurricane Tropical Storm Ada that we have really inundated much of Broward County, worse than Miami-Dade, yes. West Broward, underwater for days, more than a I week. And so what is the plan? I mean, there is a flood control system, but what is, I mean, this has got to be a top priority for you this year. It is. Actually, I chair the Broward County Water Advisory Board, and we've studied this exact issue. Uh, we are updating, in the middle of updating the floodplain maps for Broward County. We were doing that before this. We expect to have that done shortly. That's going to have an important impact on insurance rates, on development and redevelopment. You're right, Michael, it's a huge issue. It is part of the overall water issues affecting Broward, which are very significant. Drinking water, uh, flooding, and sea level rise, all very important to Broward. And uh, the uh, state rep that was with us, Daniel Perez, just a little while ago, I know Danny, um, he's a good guy. Yeah, and I, I'm going to guess you probably have been in touch because he wrote an op-ed mm -hmm. that the state is really going to need to show some leadership on this. Um, I wonder, does leadership mean money and acknowledgement of sea level rise issues? Does it mean mm -hmm. pulling all your residents off the big condos on the coast? W where do you go with that? It's not realistic that we're going to pull all of our residents off of the big condos. One of the things, again, an ordinance that I, or, that I authored in Broward is we are mandating on, on the intracoastal higher seawalls on everything because if you don't, all of the mainland is going to be flooded as well. So there are resilience measures that we can take. They're going to be expensive. I was unaware of Danny's uh, op-ed, but yes, leadership will require both changes in our development code, but also money to deal with it. Danny is the speaker designate squared, meaning he will be speaker after the next speaker. So he's in a position to make these changes, and I hope that he'll do something about it. Mayor Steve Geller, great to speak with you. Congratulations on your mayorship, and we will be speaking with you, I'm sure, several times over the next year. Always a pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. Up next, the roundtable. Welcome back. We have a reporter roundtable today. Two veteran journalists covering the ins and outs of Florida government and those who run it. And they have had their hands full in Tallahassee. We're glad to welcome Mary Ellen Kloss, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald, Neiman Fellowship winner. Also with us, Gary Finout, an 
old friend, veteran reporter with Politico, writes the Daily Politico Florida Playbook. Gary, Mary Ellen, welcome. Glad to have you. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, Mary Ellen, let me begin with you. Uh, the governor clearly for the last couple of weeks has been lying low, trying to stay out of public view, avoid people like you two. Uh, on Tuesday when the legislature had that swearing-in ceremony, I guess he ducked out a side's door. I know, Mary Ellen, you wrote a good piece for the Herald. You've got lots of questions to ask him. When is he going to sort of sit still and answer some? You know, uh, I think it's a testament to the fact that they they don't think that this election cycle really uh, was about COVID. Um, you know, they, there are a lot of unanswered questions about that, and it's really uncanny. It's a little bit like President Trump has scarcely appeared in public or made any remarks in person, so has the governor. And um, his prior to the election, much of his schedule mirrored uh, mirrored some of the, the messaging that, of the president, and that continues now after the election. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of important things as this um, virus continues to spike in the state and the vaccine continues to be an option. You know, we, we just don't have answers. So I think the governor choosing to um, uh, go to Washington and then instead of meeting with us, he did a, uh, a video and put that on social media. And that way he gets to control the message, but he doesn't get to control the questions. You know, Mary Ellen, there, that was what I think is so noticeable about that, because that's actually then Governor Rick Scott had a, a very similar pattern. But what's so noticeable now about Governor DeSantis is that at the beginning, I mean, over the past year, almost every day, especially over the last few months, uh, prior to the election, he had a big announcement every day somewhere and was actually very accessible to the press. And I think that's why this week has been so unusual. But mm -hmm. but you talked about this being an election about COVID. Gary, do you think this election was about COVID? Well, somewhat. I mean, I, I, I think I think it can be argued that, of course, the what happened ultimately and the fact that uh, Joe Biden has won was into uh, greatly to COVID. I think obviously uh, what happened in places around Florida, including uh, South Florida, clearly the election was not about COVID. It was about the economy and about the messaging related to socialism and, uh, uh, and that sort. Uh, I mean, I, the best I can view is what's going on is that Governor DeSantis is sort of, I guess, hoping that things will somehow die down and that uh, he won't have to answer questions about those comments he made about Michigan and Pennsylvania legislatures intervening in the election. He's not going to have to answer questions about hiring decisions or the fact that some places there aren't hiring. Like we, we currently don't have anyone in charge of the department that regulates uh, hospitals. I, I mean, it's, it's things of that nature, all these things that are going on, and they have just decided to sort of keep a low profile. Now, I mean, what's, what's odd about this is that right now, despite everything, DeSantis is in a very formidable position heading into his reelection campaign. Yeah. So it's not like there's there's not like there is lined up on the other side a battery of Democrats who are, are going to be prepared to take him on, or at least have the resources to take him on. Right. And furthermore, it's just, you know, with what happened this past cycle, you can argue that the Republicans are in a very strong position. So I, I don't quite understand the strategy of just not saying anything. Yeah. 
And of course, President Trump the other day at the White House in a rare appearance uh, gave the governor an, a big attaboy for, uh, for his work down here. Uh, Mary Ellen, let's talk a little bit about how the vaccines are going to be distributed. What is your understanding? Is it going to be up to the State Department of Health, up to the governor? Who's going to decide the order and who gets the vaccines and how they get uh, handed out? Well, the, 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 the uh, CDC required that the states put together a distribution plan in early October. We got a copy of that plan and, it, and it's very vague. Um, at this point, they've identified who they think should be the first uh, recipients, and there's about 3.5 million people that, you know, when you add it up, who, who might be the, the first people to get this. It would be healthcare providers, emergency um, first responders, um, and, and the vulnerable in nursing homes. Now, Pfizer has said it's going to send about a million doses to Florida, and because it needs these super cold conditions, it's identified hospitals. But there's so many questions now. You know, we've, it looks like Jackson Memorial, Broward Medical mean, um, will be among the hospitals that will get these first doses. But how? who decides among them? Um, if you've got 3.5 million people in Florida who might be on the list and you're only getting a million doses, th those are some important questions. It's essentially rationing. And we need to, you know, get some transparency as to how they're going to figure this out. Um, there are so many unanswered questions and uh, that, that remains unknown. Gary, you want to weigh in? Do you have any insight on that? Well, no, I mean, I think Mary Ellen's, you know, uh, correct in terms of, I mean, what we anticipated is that it was going to be the people in the nursing homes and, and the frontline uh, first responders were going to be the ones who were at the front of the line. But yes, there hasn't been a lot of clarity since then. That video message by the governor you know, five minutes worth. I mean, it, it, which again is just fascinating is that earlier in this crisis, he was having these roundtables and he's spending an hour discussing right. issues involving uh, COVID-19. And, and, and so it's sort of odd that he would just have a five minute sort of presentation and then, you know, not go into any further details. So I think there are a lot of questions. I mean, you know, and other questions like the state surgeon general is like nowhere to be found. I mean, he's not been out in public I mean, he's been doing weekly calls with uh, some of the healthcare providers, but still, we've not really heard from him. And, and it's just, it's, I mean, clearly what's happening is, is that from the state standpoint, the only person who apparently is authorized to give information for the most part is the governor, but the governor's not talking. So yeah. <laughs> there we are. So there we are. All right, feel well, the we frustration have, we, there. We have more questions, things like herd immunity, that theory, which the governor is pursuing. So stick with us. We'll be right back with more roundtable. We are glad you are with us for one more segment of our roundtable with Mary Ellen Kloss, Miami Herald Bureau Chief Tallahassee, and Gary Finout from Politico. Uh, Gary, let me ask you, you brought up the subject of the state Surgeon General, who has really been sort of missing in action here for a number of months. Uh, the governor has been listening to Dr. Scott Atlas, who was a chief advisor to President Trump, who is advancing this herd immunity uh, approach to dealing with coronavirus. Uh, is he still influencing the governor? I mean, is herd immunity the way the governor is going? 
Well, I think there are those who believe that that is what the governor is pursuing. I mean, there's certainly a lot of signs to indicate that they are not being as aggressive as responding to it as some of the other places. I mean, we see what's going on in other states. In California, California's governor imposed a curfew. You have things going on in various other states where they're they're trying to tackle an ongoing surge. And I, I mean, we don't we really don't know what the game plan is other than the governor has vowed repeatedly that he's not going to have a, re a lockdown. I think the only nod to the ongoing crisis that we sort of had is that we did have the education commissioner this week say that they will continue to do remote learning right. in the spring semester. However, there's a lot of details there that have not yet been disclosed, including how will districts get funded? Will they continue to get funded at the same rate if they allow uh, parents to, to opt to keep their kids out? So. I, I mean, certainly the signs indicate that there aren't, there isn't this sort of aggressive response that is going on in other states amid what's happening. So one could posit the position. And obviously, I know that uh, Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gelber has said point blank that he believes that the governor is pursuing herd immunity. And I know that Mary Ellen and the Miami Herald have done some stories that have also sort of positioned that, uh, positioned the everything that way. Uh, now, has the governor flat out said that? No. Have we seen Mr. Atlas in, in recent weeks? No. But again, I mean, it's clear throughout this entire crisis that they have taken their cues largely from the White House and they've tried to be in sync on everything. So, again, there you are. The, actually, we have, I know, Mary Ellen, you've reported on this so much. We've heard several times from Fred Piccolo, who is the chief communications person for Governor DeSantis, who flat out says, no, no, no. Heck no, this is herd immunity is not our policy. I mean, he's, he's put that out there pretty strongly. Right. Mary right. Ellen, will you, will you weigh in? I know you've done such extensive reporting on this. Yeah, well, you know, there's the problem is that herd immunity has become a politicized term. So it's probably best to just kind of avoid that. The governor has pursued an open everything policy. And in, in, in exchange, the question is, what has he done to prevent contagion? Um, and they they argue that they are doing a lot to protect the vulnerable. Well, when you look at the numbers, um, since the beginning, the first two weeks of October, there was a 140% increase in people who are over age 65 who, who were testing positive for COVID. Now, that is the age group that is perceived as the most vulnerable. So if the state is indeed protecting the vulnerable, it's not doing a very good job of it. So whether or not this is herd immunity, we don't know. Now, when you talk about immunity, it's important to remember that in order to achieve what they call community immunity, where everybody is safe from it because so many of the people have an immunity, you need three-fourths of the population to be either have antibodies or, or have the vaccine. That means 70% of Floridians. Now, we're, you know, 75% of Floridians. The question is, how do we get that point to that point if we're going to put all our eggs in the vaccine basket. Um, and, the, and that is, you know, when you look at immunity uh, during a flu season, Florida has a pretty bad record. Hardly 50% of the population even gets vaccinated during a flu season. So how are we going to ramp up? Those are many of the questions that I think this administration needs to do a better job of answering. And, you know, there's also the whole issue when it comes to vaccines of do people trust them? And um, I have actually had some high-level people within this administration who have said, 
no way I'm going to take a vaccine. So if that's happening within this administration, why, you know, where's the doubt? Aren't we seeding doubt within people? And it seems to me that there needs to be more of an education campaign um, yeah. by the White House. And, you know, if we really are going to pursue um, vaccine immunity. Mary Ellen, we're going to have to leave it right there. We're out of time. We're grateful that you joined us this morning. Uh, Gary Feinout, Mary Ellen Klaus, thanks very much. Great to see you both. And stay tuned. We will be right back.